You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hello, Served Up friends. I'm excited to introduce Jackie Summers, a James Beard finalist, seasoned public speaker, and serial entrepreneur. Summers is a founder of Jack from Brooklyn, Inc., and the creator of the award-winning Sorel liqueur made with the hibiscus plant. He shares his journey of becoming the first Black distiller on record and his passion to create a more equitable industry for all. Now grab your favorite Sorel spritz, sit back, and get inspired. Jackie, welcome to Served Up. Julie and I are truly honored to have you on the show today. What's going on, Bridget? How are you feeling today? I'm feeling good. You know what? It is Friday and we are talking to you. Yes. How are you feeling today, Julie? I'm feeling good. I'm so happy it's Friday. Um, Almost the end of the first quarter and just we're moving along super fast. With the Miana State Chiefs at a freaking weekend, yo. That's right. What are you up to this weekend? Why don't we just get right into it? Oh, I'm traveling. I'm headed to Vegas. Uh, I'll be in Vegas for Barmania, and then I'm giving the keynote at uh, Bar Restaurant Expert with Susan Ferdorf of uh, Culver Club. So, no rest for the wicked. Oh, that's right. I did see that. How exciting. Susan, I think, is one of the most underestimated people in our industry. She is the brains behind a lot of the top bars and she enjoys being behind the scenes, but holy shit, she is a wealth of information. Like if you want to know how to make a bar successful, she's kind of the Mac at that. Well, that's super exciting. Um, Jackie, I, we want to know, um, you know, I've, seen you around. I know Bridget knows you really well. You've been kind of, you know, I, I, like I tell Bridget, it's like one of the OGs in the industry, like her, you know, you guys all really helped kind of bring this new culture mixology to the culture of, of what this industry is today. Tell us a little about your story. You know, where, where'd you come from? Where'd you grow up? How did, what got you into this crazy industry of ours? Oh, I had a cancer scare. Oh. 13 years ago, my doctor found a tumor inside my spine the size of a golf ball. He said, you are probably going to die. And if you live, you might be paralyzed. You should organize your paperwork. They say that to get your attention. Uh, It got my attention. Uh, The short version is I lived. Yay! But once you make peace with death, you can't unmake your peace. I got a chance to think about what was important to me in life and to really examine my priorities. 
I had 25 years invested in corporate America. But really, what I want to do, Julie, is day drink. And when I couldn't figure out who was going to pay me to day drink, I thought to myself, I know what I'll do. I'll launch a liquor brand. How hard can it be? (laughs) Did you have experience in the business before you decided to launch the liquor brand? How did did that come to be? Five years Wall Street, 10 marketing, 10 publishing. I had never as much as bartended. I'd never worked in a restaurant in any of any sort. I knew no one and I knew nothing. Uh, so the joke I tell at this point is I'm uniquely broken because I don't know what I can't do. Yeah. That is, that should be in a t-shirt. Oh my God. Yeah. That's- I don't know what I can't do. So of course I thought yeah. I could launch a liquor brand. Mm-hmm. Well, can you tell us more like about that experience? Because that is not a small feat um, to enter any liquor space is tough. It's, right? It turns out launching a liquor brand is super freaking hard. Uh, the first thing I say is I am not a food scientist. I took a recipe that I have been making in my kitchen for almost 20 years. It comes out of the Caribbean. It's a Caribbean delicacy. They call it sorrel, S-O-R-R-E-L. It's been around at least 500 years. Every Caribbean family makes a version of this. Everyone thinks this is the best. Mine actually is the best. But no one had ever made a shelf-stable version of this. So having no background in liquor, having no contacts, had not been a food scientist, I thought to myself, I'm going to be the first person to ever make a shelf-stable version of this beverage. 623 failures in my kitchen before I came up with the recipe that we now bottle, which is number 624. And coincidentally, 624 was the day of my surgery. So if I ever play lotto, that's, that's my lucky number. <laughs> oh, wow. That is incredible. So tell us about this magic potion that you were making in your kitchen that you, you finalized and bottled. So Africans have known about the health benefits of hibiscus for thousands of years. It's full of antimicrobials, antioxidants, antifungals. It's a a natural anti-inflammatory. It's an aphrodisiac. Uh, And the Africans would take this and make a tea, and it was part of their ceremony and tradition. Fast forward to about 500 years ago, and the transatlantic trade starts. And now bodies and spices are being stolen from the continent of Africa shipped across the oceans in the bottom of boats and sold at ports of trade in the Caribbean. The people who knew what to do with this flower are being sold alongside of it. And the thing I say at this point is, and why this has meaning for me, they really did everything they could to strip the identities from these human beings. They changed their names. They broke up families. They beat and tortured them. They made them practice a different religion, speak a different language. They did everything they could to erase their identity and culture. And somehow this single cultural identifier survives. And there were no recipes because it wasn't legal for the people who were making it to read or write. This recipe is passed down generation to generation. You would watch your mother or your grandmother do it. If you didn't see an elder do it, you didn't know how it was made. And it became a tradition across the Caribbean. Every island does a version of this. Every island slightly, it has, a, has a slightly different version of what they do. 
I decided, my grandparents being from Barbados, I was going to try and take this and make it into a a beverage everyone could enjoy all year long. Uh, And the joke I tell at this point is the only thing harder than creating a shelf-stable beverage in your kitchen is getting a liquor license. When I got my DSP, my license to make liquor in 2012, it turns out I was the only black person in America at the time with a license to make liquor. It turns out I'm America's first legal licensed black distiller of record. Wow. Yeah. I mean, congratulations, but also really? I mean, it's a dubious distinction. Because and black people have been making liquor for so long, for centuries, right? Mm-hmm. And that it, you're the first one on record in just 2012. Uh, we know people did this before prohibition, but those records were deliberately obscured. So I'm the first black legal distiller on record. On record. Mm-hmm. Can we talk a little bit about that? And would like to know from your perspective, Jackie, why? I think that the distinction, like I said, is dubious and says more about the nature of the obstacles faced than anything special about me. It's really difficult to get a license to make alcohol. Uh, I want to say that a lot of the obstacles are financial. You need to, for example, put the, the address on your lease on your application. The application process can take anywhere from a year to two years, but they expect you to be paying rent on the physical space while you're waiting for your application to be approved. They expect you to put your serial numbers of your equipment on your application. So, and the equipment to distill can cost hundreds of thousands of millions of dollars. They expect you to have a a big space full of equipment that you're not using while you're sitting on your thumbs, not making money, hoping your license gets approved. So a, a good part of it is a financial uh, restrictions. If you don't have money, or if you don't come from a distilling family, it's almost impossible. The other part, and this is, this is important, it's a 10-year background check. Everywhere you've lived, everywhere you've worked, every dime you've made federal, state, and city, and if you have any convictions on your record, it's an automatic automatic disqualification. There are a lot of people that look like me who in my city got busted for carrying an ounce of weed and because of that would not qualify. I got super lucky. Uh, I've mostly been on a straight and narrow path or been just better about not getting caught about things. Uh, so I don't have a criminal record, but for all of the people that do, it automatically disqualifies. I knew from our, like even a restaurant or a bar getting a liquor license is really difficult, but I didn't realize um, to that extent getting a distilling. I mean, to already have a lease that you're paying on and equipment when you don't even have a license to produce products, like how is yeah. that even possible? Uh, it is possible because... The barriers are designed to prevent entry to market. Yeah, it's 100 percent right. It's it's more of that's possible if you are creating another line. Right. Yeah. And you've already been producing and now you need a license for an innovation line. Right. Right. Um, 
Wow. Well, that's that's interesting. Thank you for educating us on that. Um, but gosh, you got it. You figured out a way to get it. Impossible stuff is kind of my shtick. But but really, here's the thing, Julie. After I survived the cancer scare, I thought to myself, what do I have to lose? Right. Anything. I possible. mean, like I've got today. They gave me a five percent chance of survival. I hit that lotto. I'm alive. How am I going to spend the rest of my days? Because I could do the safe thing uh, and just have this quiet little existence, eking out the life and hoping that I don't die. Or I could go all out and really make the best of each freaking day. And kind of I don't see any reason to hold back. I know I could die today. You know, the, the interesting thing about making peace with death is you can't unmake the peace. I know for a fact I am going to die. So the only only question left is how am I going to live? And I'm going to live without leaving anything on the table every single day. You are a true inspiration, Jackie Summers. Those words you just said uh, hit me pretty hard. That's thank you for those words and for sharing that very incredible part of your journey. I mean, so many people give up and, and here you are just persevering and pushing and leaving it all on the table. I got to tell you, Bridget, I don't think there's anything special about me. Um, My parents, my dad was a jazz musician, played for Armstrong, played for Count Basie, Sarah Vaughan, Billie Holiday, did a lot of incredible things, but really he was just trying to feed a family. My mom was a food scientist in the, my mom was a research scientist in the 1950s doing some of the first studies on the effects of cigarette smoke in lab animals at a time when this country didn't have a use for women or black people. She wasn't trying to be extraordinary. She was trying to feed a family. They were trying to eat. Uh, I'm trying to drink. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. So the recipe that you're using, you know, as you said, it's kind of like a magic potion. When you're in this industry, right? And especially the space that you're in as a brand owner, you do have to understand flavor. Yes. And combining those flavors. Yes. So for you, where did that art stem from? Where did you learn to pull those flavors in from your ancestors and make them marry with one another? So like I said, my grandparents arrived in this country in 1920 from Barbados. And my my grandfather on my mother's side was a chef, professionally trained. He taught mom and mom taught me. So as a child. I was a kid hanging on mom's apron in the kitchen and my job was, I was the official taster. So mom would cook or bake and she would give up me a spoonful and go, what does this need? Mom, I'm a kid. I don't know what this needs. Like I have no idea what things needed. So she would walk me through spices. So, well, this is basil. This is oregano. This is pepper. This is red pepper. This is black pepper. She walked me through what spices did and how to play with them and how to make them dance and how to not have them compete against each other. The problem with hibiscus, which is at the heart of of Sorel, is that hibiscus is a diva. It really wants to dominate you with citrus. And most people respond to this by burying it in sugar. And the result is syrupy and cloying and not fun. My thought in making Sorel was to surround hibiscus lovingly with other botanicals. So instead of it being the single note, it was 
a voice in the choir. It was part of the ensemble cast. So there's Moroccan hibiscus, which is really the heart of the flavor and it's all the color. But there's Nigerian ginger to mask the heat of the alcohol. There's Brazilian clove to, to add brightness and fullness. There's Indonesian cinnamon for warmth and there's Indonesian nutmeg for that dry finish in the back. Instead of it being a single note, it's a chorus of flavor that doesn't compete, they complement. I I love that. And I had the the privilege of tasting um Sorel for your blind tasting, but I don't think it's called by tasting in the dark. Tasting in the dark. Vibe, which is brilliant. I've been in this industry for a very long time, predominantly on the wine side. So we're used to blind tastings, but talk to us about tasting in the dark. Walk our listeners through that because not only is it innovative and a different way to taste and really understand flavor, um, it was just so magical as, as far as like really getting your senses to, to take in the product and, and with your partner Hobie, and it was just wonderful. So please tell us all about that. So tasting in the dark is the brainchild of Dr. Hobie Redler. He's a PhD chemist and a sommelier who happened to have been born blind. He got his start in the industry doing blind tastings for Ford Coppola wines. He's done, I think, at least 2,000 of them. And he and I started working together around 2018 doing DEI work. Uh, Part of my problem with the conversations around DEI is too often they focus just on ethnicity and race. No one talks about gender. No one talks about sexuality. No one talks about ageism. And nobody talks about ableism. Nobody. I want to have the most inclusive conversation I can have. Hobie and I started working together back in 2018. In 2022, I asked him to come on board for Sorel as my chief food scientist. And I got to tell you, he's just doing a fantastic job. The product tastes better, costs less to make, uh, there's less waste, and our process is proprietary. So really, nobody else can do what we do. That said, it ties in perfectly to this theme that we've had going along this narrative of what diversity is supposed to look like, because the team that we've been able to create looks like the team we've been talking about having working with all these years. I taught a seminar for many years called How to Build a Longer Table with the idea that it would be in everyone's best interests to invite people like myself who might be at a disadvantage for whatever reason to sit at these existing tables because we have genuine contributions to make. It's statistically proven that diverse companies make more money. It's statistically proven that companies that are women-led make more money. So why there aren't more of these was always baffling to me. So we came with a presentation that was full of sound and fury and anecdotes and statistics, and not a damn thing changed. So I flipped that conversation, and I started to teach a a seminar called How to Build Your Own Table in the Middle of the Pandemic. And this resonated because ultimately it is easier to construct a table that is designed 
to accommodate men and women, black and white, straight and queer, religions, able, disabled, everyone, than it is to reform tables that just aren't designed that way. The program I teach now with Dr. Redler is proof of concept because since Surreal relaunched in 2021, we've built a team that looks like what we've always talked about. We are black, we are white, we are Latino, we are South Asian, we are Christian, we are Sikh, we are Catholic, we are straight, we are queer, we are abled, we are disabled, we are Gen X, we are Gen Y. And we lean on each other's differences. And we attribute our success to the fact that so many different types of opinions are brought to the table in a cohesive way and they complement each other. They don't compete. So in the one sense, it's great in that we get to prove that the model of building a table that is diverse on the ground that works. And in addition to that, we get to do this beverage in a way that other people don't get to do where the contributions of somebody like a PhD chemist who happens to be blind are absolutely essential to our success. It's It's been wonderful. That is beautiful and how it really should be because you know what? Your company reflects um, your consumer. Yes, absolutely. I'm always surprised at some of the bigger companies every now and then will come up with a their their versions of what women should drink. I'm kind of like, why don't you just ask women, and they'll tell you what they what they want. Well, as we're you know kind of talking about that, you know how how is Sorel served? You know how are you serving it? And as you were creating it, you know what did you discover? Did you discover like new ways um, to to drink it? So the interesting thing about creating a beverage is what makes it shelf-stable is not how long it lasts, but how quickly does it break. So I spent months making a product and then trying to break it. You make a batch, then you leave it out in the sun, you leave it in the back of a car, you freeze it, you nuke it, you boil it. And the first 623 versions, eh, pretty breakable. You know, the joke I tell is, if you think you have an idea that's so good, no one's ever thought of it before, it's probably a terrible idea. Don't do it. There's probably a reason why no one has done it before. That said, once we got to a point where we had something that was shelf-stable, it was like, okay, now how do we move forward from this point, right? Like, what, what are the things that we need to do that will help make this accessible all year long? I found out that boiling it creates a, or heating it up, I should say, creates a completely different flavor profile. My grandparents came from Barbados. It's always 85 degrees. They would never, ever think of drinking sorrel hot. I live in Brooklyn. It's fucking cold outside. Sorrel is delicious, hot. When you serve this cold, fruity, floral, so refreshing, serve it hot, spicy, nutty, like a warm, boozy hug. So what we found out is that Sorel is not just the most versatile uh, modifier on the market, it's the most seasonal. So in the wintertime, we really do just serve hot cocktails, hot toddies and hot Sorel. And because there's no sulfites and no tannins, 
you can serve us like a mulled wine, but there's no wine headache. In the springtime, we see all the gin cocktails and all the all of the all of the agave cocktails come out. So right now, I'm seeing Sorel uh, hibiscus margaritas pop up all around the country. In the summertime, we see spritzes and mules. In the fall, we see all of the stirred cocktails. I'm stirring my finger like Gaz Regan used to do with a Negroni. Negronis, Boulevardiers, uh, Manhattans, Old Yum. Fashions, everything stirred right is perfect for Sorel. And let me start back at one with the hot cocktails again. So spring, summer, fall, winter, Sorel is delicious for all seasons. Four seasons of Sorel. I like it. That's actually the first thing that came to my mind as soon as Bridget asked you. I'm like, there's probably a cocktail for every season. Um, but you're right, because it's, you know, in tasting it, it, it's you do get that citrus, you get that hibiscus, that floralness, and then you get that a bit of that bitter, right? That you would get yes. in like your bitters. So I could yes. see how that's a good alternative to a Negroni or a Boulevardier using yes. Sorel instead of, you know, the usual. So Sorel does one thing especially well as a modifier, and that's it masks ethanol. If you put it with gin, rum, vodka, mezcal, tequila, scotch, bourbon, rye, sake, but if you put it with, it does that one thing. If you put it with something that's agave-based, you will get more fruit and smoke and less ethanol. If you put it with something that's gin-based, you will get more botanicals and less ethanol. If you put it with something that has been aged, uh, whiskey or rum, you'll get more barrel notes and less ethanol. So the beauty of Sorel is people won't realize they're drinking. Yeah, cancels out the alcohol. It's the only flavor you don't want to taste. (laughs) Right? So what? So now you know you're, you're producing. You've got it out there. How? What have you learned that you just did not know on getting your product to the market? Because you know, in the U.S., it's no, it's no joke. It's it's pretty complicated getting your product to the consumer through the multiple tiers. What what has that journey been like, you? And and what did you learn? What do you know now that you wish you would have known then? I mean, we could spend the next six <laughs> months talking about the things that I know now that I didn't know then. Suffice it to say, I am grateful for the asshole 10 years ago who launched my company, but I would not trust that guy to run my company today. Uh, me 10 years ago, thank you, but I wouldn't hire him right now. The thing that I learned most of all and the thing that is most useful to me in my business right now is what I call the 95% rule. My role has changed in that I used to I used to do everything. I used to make the product, bottle, label, filter. I did the marketing. I did the PR. I did the education sessions. I traveled to different states and launched new markets. I kept the books. I did not do all of it well. I don't think it's possible to do all of those things well. The reason we're succeeding nowadays is because now I have a team. And my team are made up of people who, A, are all differently brilliant than me, and B, have completely different life backgrounds, so their perspective is always, always remarkable. And that helps me out in the fact that I just need to come up with ideas, and then my team executes. 
we've got some beautiful stuff coming down the, the pike that you'll see in about a month. But I throw the idea out to my team and I get back, well, here's your cost of goods and here's your timeline and here's your SRP and here's your production process. And everything I need to do to make things actually work, the team does. And my rule of thumb is, here's the idea. When you're 95% done, call me back. And if I have notes, great. But usually by the time the team has done all that work on their own, I have nothing left to contribute. I can go back out into a field somewhere and chase butterflies. That's great. So you really do empower everyone around you. So it's a cohesive um, action. Why hire people that you don't trust? Mm -hmm, Right. My team, not only do I trust them, but every person on my team knows when to go, okay, Jack, you need to back off. Mm -hmm. I'm the expert. I'm right. You're wrong. And I'll go, okay. Thank you for being clear with me. My, my company has simple rules. Rule number one is do things that matter with people you care about. I've done things that didn't matter with people I couldn't stand. Never again. Rule two is have fun. Make money. Listen, we all have to eat and live in the world, but we want to have fun while we're doing it. I've done things that weren't fun, didn't pay enough. Never again. Rule three and this is maybe the most important rule, take shit from no one. And that includes, and most especially, me. So Mm -hmm. my team knows, while technically I get to make the final call on stuff, no one takes shit from me. And I count on them to maintain a kind of environment where we keep each other in check. Yeah, and that's important because then people are being honest with you and you're not surrounded by yes people. Yeah. Right. And that's so important, you know, just reading um, the five dysfunctions of a team. And one of those is it's healthy conflict. Right. You you need to have healthy conflict in order to grow and and really maximize capabilities. So that sounds like a great rule book. And I know you said it's coming, but what is next? What's next for Sorrel? Can you give us a hint at what's to come? So I will say this much. Sorel is proof of concept in that it is a beverage that sat in the Caribbean for centuries and no one ever thought about putting it into a bottle. How many other beverages are out there like that right now waiting for somebody like me to figure out how to make it shelf stable, to figure out how to market it, to find somebody from that culture who I can invest in the brand and put out front so I'm not culturally appropriating. And then market these things and bring new flavors to the world. Listen, the next four or five brands, I have ready to go. And I'll never do a gin, a whiskey, a vodka, a mezcal, a tequila. God bless the folks who are doing that and doing it well. I got new flavors to introduce to the world. And the beautiful part is, every time Jack from Brooklyn puts out a product, it will be a category of one. There will be no competition. I love that. I love that. Can you talk about, you know, through all this hard work, through all the um, wonderful things that you do as an advocate, as someone who is a founder and owner of a company, Jackie, what do you do for fun? Because I'm going to tell you something. Um, We all work really hard. How are you avoiding 
the ever loving burnout that this industry uh, loves to give? So the thing I have to say at this point, Bridget, is I have burned out completely. In 2015, I signed a deal to take Surreal National worth millions of dollars, and the deal fell through. And I negotiated a second contract to completion in 2016, again, for millions of dollars, and that deal fell through. Bridget, I had a nervous breakdown. I was homeless for a year and a half. And in the year and a half, I was homeless. I was meeting with some of the top people in our industry. I was meeting with the owners and the heads of some of the biggest conglomerates on the planet. And everyone had the same response from me. Kid, great product, great reviews, great sales track, sales track record, great branding. When I, when I got an apartment again in 2008, in 2018, after being homeless for a year and a half, the first thing I did was put up an altar. That's my altar behind me. I pray, I meditate, and I snuggle my cat. And most important, I trust my team. I trust my team to make sure that things are going at all times. You know, it's a funny thing about craft businesses that I told people, if you can't step away from your job from a day, you don't have a company. You have a very expensive hobby. And I love the fact that at this point, if I need to, I can call my VP and go, I'm having a personal day. If anything's on fire, call me. Otherwise, I'm unavailable. So what helps me these days, again, I still pray. I still meditate. The most important things I did for myself last year, I got a personal trainer, a business coach, and a therapist. And I'm trying to make sure that I am fundamentally sound to do my job because people depend on this point. So important, right? So important, mental health, taking care of yourself and kind of having that resilience through those hard times. And I think a lot of people think having their own brand is, you know, or even our industry in general is all just, you know, happy times. And it, it really, the struggle is real. Um, but I do agree with you that I think it's such a great time and the time for especially minorities and women to get into this industry and create their own brands. Um, you know, there's so many different resources and organizations out there that are really helping with this. And um, I think it's really time to diversify the suppliers and our products in this industry. What do you, what advice would you give somebody that's thought about that? Like you said, maybe have been creating something in their kitchen year after year that they drink at home. Cause I know a lot of cultures do that. Even in the Korean culture, they make their own um, rice wine yes. at home. There's so many different ones. So like what advice would you give somebody that's been thinking about it to just go after it? So the first thing I'll say is I love the fact that you separated women and minorities because women are, women are a majority of the population on the planet. Women are 51% of the population. They're only a minority in power. I'm sort of surprised every day you guys don't burn everything to the ground. But thank you. Thank you for not burning to the ground yet. 
But the suggestions I would give would not be to the individuals who have these ideas. The suggestions I would give would be to the people financing mm-hmm. and and backing the ideas. The venture fund. Yep. The capital. Look at legitimate business performance. Women owned brands perform better. Minority owned brands perform better. Diverse boards perform better. If you want to make sound investments, if you want real innovation and not just a revamped version of something that happened last year and the year before, look at different people. Look at people who actually have not had the same advantages as some of the others. Because when you are working from a disadvantage, you learn to be resourceful in spite and in lack of actual resources. Oh, I couldn't agree more, right? The people that would benefit the most are the ones funding these up and coming brands. And absolutely. absolutely, that's where the opportunity is and the innovation. Um, and it's not like you said, it's not just innovation of, oh, here's a new line item. Let's just slap on a different label. It's true innovation, cultural, bringing things to the market that are so different and so unique. And um, I think that's great advice. So I happen to be a judge this year for Discus's Innovation Contest. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you, part of the problem with innovation is they keep asking the same people for new ideas. Ah, okay. Maybe okay. ask different people what they have to contribute and you'll get actual innovation and not rehashes of something that you've already seen. Yeah, because, you know, when you um, spoke earlier, Jackie, that what you want to bring is um, singular to a category, right? Yes. We don't see that. We'll see bazillion flavors of vodkas, whatever it might be. But again, it's just another flavored vodka. It's not not innovation. It's not innovation. I, I, I would not know how. Walked into liquor barns. I've walked into total wines. I wouldn't know how to market a gin or a vodka or a tequila or a bourbon and the absolute glut of products that are out there. The wonderful thing about Sorel, Sorel has a 93% reorder rate, which is astounding for a craft brand, but it exists because of one reason. If you put Sorel into a cocktail, nothing, nothing can replace it. Gins, vodkas, whiskeys, tequilas, that's swapped in and out all the time. Swimming so the menu, I'm the only one that makes Sorel. You got to deal with me. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you have, you, you have a lot there and I think you, you know that, but you know, everybody is so like, I'm a gin person or I'm a vodka or I like my whiskey and they like their one category where Sorel, you know, compliments all of it. Right. So you, you keep your category and you make your cocktail with Sorel. I love that. Someone asked me recently who my demographic for Sorel is, and my response is people who drink Coca-Cola, because the people who drink soda, the majority of them drink Coca-Cola. But people like myself who do not drink soda on a regular basis will grab a Coke if there's no other choice. So the people who like a really good modifier, sure. Drink Sorel, Mm -hmm. but for the people who don't normally drink, I want to be their first choice. Mm -hmm. If people have one drink a week and they drink nothing else, 
I want them to reach for a bottle of Cirelle, and here's why. Alcohol, as an industry, has a problem nobody talks about, and that is that alcohol does not taste good. As human beings, we discovered the effects of alcohol 10,000 years ago. But one of the side effects is if it's not done well, it will kill you. It's toxic. And as human beings, we've spent thousands of years trying to figure out how to make this more potable. If you ask me what, my, what I do, I make tiny amounts of poison potable. What have we done to make alcohol taste better in the last 10,000 years? We add sugar, we add fruit, we add botanicals, we put it in casks. There's always someone trying to figure out how to make alcohol taste better. At Jack from Brooklyn, we reverse the logic. Big liquor takes alcohol and they add flavor. So we have blueberry-flavored vodka and habanero-flavored tequila and cinnamon-flavored whiskey. They're adding, they're adding flavor to alcohol. I add alcohol to flavor. I start with flavor, and then we add just enough alcohol to stabilize the product and for me to actually make a dollar or two if I'm lucky. I love it. Can you tell our listeners where they can find Sorrel and where they can find you? Sorrel is available in about 20 states at the moment. We'll be in 35 states by the end of the year. If we're not in your state at the moment, go to sorrelofficial.com and have someone deliver it to your home. We also were on Instagram on Sorel at Sorel Official. And if you want to find me, I'm Jack from BKLN on all social media. Wonderful. Well, Jackie, on behalf of Julie and I, I want to thank you for spending time with this us. This was so fun. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I want to just wish you, you know, some great health and a whole lot of peace. Thank you so much for being on Served Up. This was absolutely wonderful. Bridget, Julie, thank you so much. This is great. And like, can I share one, one last thing with you before I go? Please yes, do. Please. There's a toast in my family that my mother gave to me that her mother gave to her. It's been around for generations and it's call and response. One person says, may you live forever. And the response is, may you never die. Bridget, I gave that toast for decades and didn't understand what it meant because everybody dies, somebody lives forever. And then I started working on this project and I realized it's not how long you inhabit, inhabit this body on earth. It's are you living a life worth telling stories about for generations? So may I say to you, Bridget and Julie, that you both live forever. And may you never die. May you never die. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future Served Up episodes. Cheers. <laughs>